1: Hi, I'm Rachel Hampton, and you're listening to ICYMI. In case you missed it, Slate's podcast about internet culture. And it is day 2,567 in the long Twitter siege. For now, I still have a blue check. It's unclear how long that will still be true. George Bush and Tony Blair have been resurrected as verified, but presumably unofficial accounts, and they're reminiscing fondly about the Iraq war on Twitter. A verified Nintendo account tweeted out, Mario flipping us off. Another verified account potentially costs a pharmaceutical company millions of dollars. Morale is low. The vibes are chaotic. It's unclear how long provisions of posting energy will hold out. This may be my last entry. Signing off. Hey, I'm journalist Sam Sanders. I'm poet Saeed Jones. And I'm producer Zach Stafford. And we are the hosts of a podcast called Vibe Check. On Vibe
0: Check, we talk about everything.
1: News, culture, and entertainment, and how it all feels. That's right. We talk about any and everything on our show, from real life issues like grief to music and movie critiques. And that barely scratches the surface. Yes, indeed. And it doesn't stop there. We have got a lot to say, so join our group chat, come to life. Follow and listen to Vibe Check wherever you get your podcasts. Just kidding! Well, not about any of those verified accounts that all happened, but we have got a show to do, so I'm not signing off just yet. Small programming note, we will be doing another Ask a Tech Reporter segment for next Wednesday's episode all about, you guessed it, Twitter. So if y'all have any burning questions about like the FTC or consent decrees, please send them our way so someone smarter than me can answer them. But today's show actually isn't about Twitter. Today's show is all about sex, baby. It's about you and me. It's about all the good times and the bad times. That may be. That's right. We're talking about sex, specifically sex and the Internet. After a short break, we'll be back with Samantha Cole, a senior editor at Vice and the author of the forthcoming book, How Sex Changed the Internet and the Internet Changed Sex. This conversation is so wide ranging and fun. You won't want to miss it. And we're back with Samantha Cole, a senior editor at Motherboard and author of the forthcoming book, How Sex Changed the Internet and the Internet Changed Sex. Sam, I'm so excited to have you here.
0: I'm so excited to be here. Thank you so much for having me.
1: Of course. So before we dive into your incredible book, I have to ask, what is your very first internet memory?
0: (laughs) (laughs) My first internet memory, I was just talking about this with someone, I... Got on the internet kind of late, I think, for my peers. Mm. So I was, like, really anxious to get on the internet, and I couldn't wait. I was probably 10 or 11 or 12 or something, but I was watching, like, Nickelodeon a lot, Mm -hmm. as you do in the 90s. And there was always, like, go to Nick.com and, like, play this game. And I was like, I'm missing everything. I'm missing (laughs) out. Like, there's a whole other world that's happening that I don't have access to. Like, we must get the internet. Mm -hmm. I was, like, nagging my parents (laughs) So that was the first thing I did. I was like, I have to go to, like, the Nickelodeon website. And then from there, I was like, oh, there's so much more that I can do here. <laughs>
1: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There's so much more than these JavaScript games. Right, these little, like,
0: Flash games. <laughs> yes,
1: yes. I miss those, honestly. It's for the Me Disney too. Channel ones all the time. Oh, my God, those were good. <laughs> yes, they were incredible. So you've been covering, like, the intersection of sex and the Internet for a while now. What was the moment that you thought, you know What? I'm going to write a book.
0: (laughs) (laughs) My publisher actually approached me because they were uh, a fan of my work. They were like, we're looking for, you know, this kind of thing. And I had been thinking about it before and I was kind of like, what would that kind of book look like if I did write a book about my work? But I couldn't really decide on like what that specifically would be. Like I couldn't pick one thing. So, you know, to do a project that's like the whole history of sex on the internet feels Mm -hmm. like a little bit like. cheat code. Like I could just do all of it instead of picking one thing. But it turned out to work out really well because it was so informative to be able to research and read about this huge, like wide view of how we got here today, um, going back to like 30 years ago. And, you know, even earlier than that, uh, talking about how people actually got online to begin with. So yeah, it worked out, but at first, it was like, I've like been off more than I can share with it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so,
1: I feel yeah. like it's especially refreshing as people who work in digital media. So much of what we're doing is very of the moment. And even if we are doing research that's kind of more contextual, there's rarely yeah. time to kind of sit with stuff and like archive. So this seems like a very yeah. like kind of rewarding project from that perspective.
0: Yeah, I'm always trying to, like, work, like, little histories into, like, news stories. But a lot of the times it's just, like, you have to write, like, you know, I mean, tech reporting is, like, you have to write what's happening, like, right in the moment yeah. or you'll miss it. So there's not always time for that, like you said. Like, it's just, you know, kind of staying on top of the ball. But with this, it was really nice just kind of, like, take that breathing room and say, okay, let's really dig into, like, some of the stories that maybe people haven't heard about that are from, you know, way back when that people have forgotten about or hadn't stumbled
1: across to begin with, so... Yeah. So how did you kind of form this beat that you've been on?
0: Yeah, I, um, I've been doing um, tech reporting for a while and I was doing science reporting and technology for a bit before this, but it was more like hard sciences and doing a lot of like space reporting. I thought I wanted to be like a full time space reporter. Um, so it's, <laughs> it's funny that I'm like still just like following Elon Musk around his life. <laughs> You can't get rid of him. (laughs) I know, God. It's like, can you stop buying the companies that I'm like reporting on?
1: (laughs) Can you just stop, period? (laughs) Just stop,
0: period. Just stop. But yeah, so I was doing that kind of thing. And then I was always pretty interested in like gender and sexuality as it it works along with technology. Um, But then when I was hired on at Vice full time and at Motherboard, they were in need of someone to just kind of dig into that kind of thing and, you know, follow like the adult industry and kind of explore the ways that like our sexuality and our gender are kind of being changed and changing the ways that we use technology and use the internet and kind of treating those topics as seriously as you would treat like uh, Google or Facebook or Mm -hmm. SpaceX or whatever. Because it is, it's just such a huge industry and it's a massive, you know, interest that people have for using the internet, obviously. That's where it all started was, you know, being focused on this beat started with
1: Vice. I do love that you mentioned treating it as seriously as we treat like SpaceX or Google or whatever, because arguably sex on the internet affects more people than a SpaceX rocket <laughs> ever will.
0: Yeah, it's so true. Yeah. I always say this It's like, you know, people are you know, using like Pornhub and Xvideos and all these sites and cam sites and OnlyFans and they might not be using Twitter or uh, Instagram or TikTok, but like, A lot of people are using these sites um, and these sites are making a lot of money and they're, you know, huge economies to themselves and they're changing culture and leading culture. So why not treat them with the same, like, respect and also just seriousness, like, the same inquiry into them than just, like, a drive-by, like, PR article about, like, I don't know, like, smell-o-vision and porn. It's like... (laughs) Yes. That's great. I did. A, mm-hmm. I did a lot of that kind of blogging, but you know, you can also do the same kind of investigative stuff that other tech reporters are doing, but within this this beat specifically.
1: Yeah, definitely. And I feel like having that kind of deep background, you avoid getting pieces like Nick Kristoff's piece on yeah. <laughs> Pornhub, which is I feel like a lot of sex related topics on the internet very much have this voyeuristic quality that kind of doubles down on the inherent voyeuristic quality of porn. Yeah.
0: Yeah, it's kind of, you're replaying like the same kind of prejudices in your own reporting if you're mm-hmm. looking at it that way that, you know, consumers of it might be used to reading about. But I mean, I can't like, I can't take credit for that myself. It's, I've always, you know, no matter what kind of reporting I've been doing, it's always been led by the people doing the actual work. Mm-hmm. So, you know, talking to people who use OnlyFans every day or use my or whatever it is, Pornhub, or, you know, use Twitter for sex work and Treating them as like very knowledgeable experts on mm. what they do because they are. I think that's how you avoid something like a Kristoff drive by is actually listening to people about their own jobs. Mm-hmm. It's not like a revelation.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's not. It's not a secret, and yeah. yet, and yet, it's and yet, treated like the biggest industry secret. I realize that I brought up the Nick Kristoff reporting, but for our listeners <laughs> who don't know what I'm referring to, could you explain it?
0: Yeah. So there's this whole like kind of push from anti-trafficking groups that are mostly like conservative and religious. Yeah. These groups are pushing to get Pornhub push off the internet, basically. Yeah. Like they they don't want it to exist because they blame it for trafficking. So this piece was very focused on kind of painting Pornhub in that light. And, you know, there are really serious issues at play in that article and in these issues where you're talking about people who've been through really horrific things. And like, image abuse is a real thing. Non-essential image abuse is very serious and like happens a lot and trafficking happens. But blaming the website for it is an interesting tack to take because Mm -hmm. so much of the time it's like, it's someone in their lives. It's, you know, it's a partner, it's a domestic abuse situation, it's a boyfriend or husband doing the actual like abusing and then uploading those videos to Pornhub. And Pornhub should be accountable for that kind of thing, but like people also use that platform for their livelihoods. So it was a very like one-sided myopic kind of take on that issue because a lot of it was listening to these conservative lobbyists that don't want... Sex to exist on the internet, or maybe at all. I, I think, don't know. Honestly, I can't at go all. That yeah. Far,
1: <laughs> it's really interesting which websites are considered viable to be nuked off the internet for right violations, and which ones are just kind of allowed to proliferate. Yeah. So, just returning to your book, I really want to commend you on archiving some of this stuff because so much of the early internet is just lost.
0: It's just gone. Yeah. Mm. I owe a debt of gratitude to the Internet Archive just because the work they're doing is like. The Lord's work, like, mm-hmm. the stuff would be gone forever. And then some of the people I talked to ha- happened to have like things saved from when they were developing websites yeah. mm-hmm. um, for the first time in like the nineties or whatever. That was my favorite part of it—just kind of digging up like old like buttons and little mm-hmm. ephemera like that.
1: Yeah, It's cool. Yeah. So early on, you made a distinction in that kind of caught my eye. You wrote, today's social media feeds are a mix of the worst people's unsolicited opinions about World War III, other people dunking on those people, and commands that I don't scroll past crowdfunding requests for someone's sick cat. We're users now, not members. What is the difference to you between users and members? And when do you think that change occurred? Because I feel like we have been in the user era for a while now.
0: Yeah, um, that's a really good question. That's really like, you're paying attention. (laughs) I'm like, oh shit, she read the book. Um, but (laughs) yeah, I mean, member, you used to be a member of a community online. And I'm not saying it was like hugs and love and kumbaya (laughs) community. It was like, it was, you were there because you were interested in something. And maybe it was like, it was like a multi-user domain where you were like role-playing or you were a part of a bulletin board that was into like a specific kind of like, porn or hobby, those still exist today, but now we're all kind of like in the same pot with everyone else for the most part. Like we're all on Twitter. We're all on Instagram. Gosh, I think the the distinction between members and users, I think is more like, like it's a product now. Mm. Like we're using something that someone else made. And before it was like people made it together, not necessarily even the architecture of the thing, but like the purpose of it and the um, spirit of it. And now it's like we're just kind of getting steamrolled by the thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. We're just on the other end of the fire hose. Unless you've really curated your feeds, which I have so many people like muted and blocked. And I still am just getting like <laughs> <Yes. bolded. laughs>
1: mm-hmm. it doesn't It almost doesn't matter like what you mute and block. It doesn't matter. You know, it's never ending. And I think also like
0: we're being used by the products yeah. too. Like we are being extracted from, like, the value of these companies uh, is in us, but, like, we don't get value back anymore. Or, you know, if we are, it's limited to whatever they they decide. Mm. I definitely think there is a big distinction. When that happened, I mean, I would want to say probably, like, whenever Facebook and got mm. really huge. Or even, like, MySpace was maybe, like, one of the early ones, but yeah, it, when it
1: became more like we're gonna like collect your data, yeah. I think. <laughs> so I guess mid two thousands. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. You mentioned bulletin boards, and that was one of the most fascinating parts of the book because it's just an era that I've never experienced, yeah. like bulletin boards and and MUDs. Could you explain mm-hmm. like what those were? Because they exist before the World Wide Web did.
0: Yeah, yeah. So bulletin board systems were um, they were invented in the late seventies as literally a replacement for a cork board the guys who invented it wanted to replace the like computer club cork board that they had up and they couldn't get to it because it snowed (laughs) it was like a blizzard it was a blizzard and they were like well what do we do and they were like well we're computer nerds like let's make something on the computer (laughs)
1: incredible
0: (laughs) but you know you could kind of join a a bulletin board in whatever interests that you had and a lot of them were porn-based like a ton of them. The, I think I listed some of the the names of them. There was, like, Sleazenet, mm-hmm. Throbnet. Yeah. Throbnet is my favorite. I want to start Throbnet like 2.0. Honestly,
1: we need it. <laughs> it's
0: so funny. It's, like, the names are just so cute mm-hmm. and, like, gross. Um, <laughs> Very quaint. Yeah. There's no mistaking what you're there for. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that's what uh, bulletin board systems for. And it was your posting. Like, you, were, you write your post, and then someone replies – and um, it kind of is going at that pace. And, and you know, it was like message, like the prototypes were like message boards today.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And those were connected with telephone modems. And then you have MUDs, which uh, is short for multi user domain or dungeon, depending on who you ask. Dungeon <laughs> comes from um, like Dungeons and Dragons. Mm-hmm. Although I think some of it was probably like sex dungeon, <laughs> 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 like a little bit of that connotation. But those were more like real time, like interactive, like you were in a more of a chat with people, like you were role playing with other people. Sometimes they had themes, sometimes they were like sword and sorcery type Mm -hmm. places where you were given a character and like had to like play the game Mm -hmm. essentially. And others were just social. You can describe yourself via text and then you could say like I am, you know, like horrific dragon (laughs) named Bob. And people (laughs) would that's what people saw you as in their minds. Mm -hmm. And then you role play as, you know, whatever that thing is i mean that was a really interesting part of researching this book is reading about how people really 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 got into muds Mm -hmm. and bulletin boards but also muds were so immersive and like imaginative that you could really easily get sucked in and become like your social life Mm -hmm. uh, in one of these things
1: yeah yeah it definitely feels like a precursor to a lot of the kind of like dungeons and dragons live playing that happens right now
0: yeah yeah exactly (laughs) yeah
1: So, unfortunately, to go from something that's very fun to something that's not, I feel like moral panic about children's access to sexual content has existed pretty much from the beginning of what we think of as the internet. And, like, this comes up pretty often in your book. You wrote about a 1995 Time magazine cover, and the headline is, Cyberporn Exclusive! (laughs) A new study shows how pervasive and wild it really is. Can we protect our kids and free speech? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> and that cover article, which Senator Chuck Grassley, when it entered into the congressional record, ended up being based on pretty shoddy evidence, right?
0: Yeah, that was probably one of the first times that, like, internet foreign panic showed up in the mainstream mm-hmm. and, like, in people's awareness of what was going on. and. You know, it was the the study that this article was based on. I mean, it was claiming that like 85% of all the images on Usenet were pornographic and also that a lot of them were like pedophilia and bestiality and really horrific things. So the implication was like, your kids can access this and it's, you know, you should be horrified. And the reality of it was the research that the guy was doing was really shoddy, mm-hmm. couldn't be replicated. Um, he was accessing these Usenet spaces by basically lying to, like, the admin about, like, a book that he Oof. supposedly wrote about porn and then didn't exist. And, yeah. like, it was just research practices that would, like, make any researcher, like, cringe and die. Like, it was really <laughs> just bad. But then, you know, it's the cover of time. It's like, you couldn't really get more mainstream than that. But there were lobbyists saying, like, Chuck Presley, like you said, like, he was, like, waving this magazine around <laughs> on, like, the, the floor, like, saying, what are we going to do about this? Um, We have to... Stop this madness! Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and it kind of like started this like push for more censorship of sex on the internet, and especially in the adult industry, which was just getting kind of like really, really taking off in 1995. Mm. So yeah, that was a a crazy time to kind of live through. But you know, you see it; it's still happening. Yeah, similar kind of moral
1: panics happening these days. It felt very familiar. Why do you think that? That particular moral panic about children having access to sexually explicit content rather than other concerns that are kind of inherent to the Internet as we know it, like harassment or privacy or scams. Why do you think that that particular moral panic is so bound up with the Internet?
0: Yeah, that's a good question. I think the Internet offers and always has offered a really powerful venue for expression and also discovery. Mm -hmm. Like, if you're using the internet for the first time, you're discovering things about other people, you're discovering things about yourself, about the world, opinions that you've never been exposed to. Like, it's the opposite of, like, being sheltered and in, like, an isolated community. It's, Mm -hmm. you can pick anything that you want to learn about and it'll all be there for you. For better or worse. Yeah. So, <laughs>
1: um,
0: but that's I think that's scary for people who want to who want to tie that kind of thing down. Like they don't want people to think outside of, you know, what they're told. So that's kind of a that's probably a, a galaxy brain take on like why <laughs> really I think the big motivating thing is is, you know, controlling people's experiences and their own expressions in their lives. So yeah, I mean and also like the, the kids stuff is really easy to get politicians on board with specifically. Yeah. You know, no one's gonna say, uh, I'm I'm not gonna sign that anti trafficking bill mm-hmm. because then you're the uh, you're the politician that is against saving the kids from trafficking. Yeah. <laughs> um, so <laughs> like it gets twisted. And yeah. we saw what happened with foster sesta like where mm-hmm. that was such a a popular bill with, like, legislators because it was just, like, something they could just sign and look good, and they were like, oh, sure. Yeah. And they're trafficking? Yeah. I'm trafficking bad. Like, no.
1: So just to take it back for a moment, FOSTA-SESTA was a set of, like, really controversial bills that were theoretically supposed to make it easier to cut down on illegal sex trafficking online, but the impact was much more complicated than that. And harmed a lot of consensual sex workers. Exactly. Yeah.
0: Under the guise of like saving people who don't necessarily need saving in a lot of the cases, like consensual Mm. sex workers. And also just like, it's just an easy win for these groups. I mean, I'm saying this over and over when this kind of thing comes up, but it's like anti-trafficking groups don't really, that don't focus on issues that are more systemic and more material to a person's experience. And are more worried about shutting down a porn website, mm-hmm. aren't really trying to solve trafficking. They're just trying to win points. Yeah, and it's such a waste of time. <laughs> like there are so many people doing really good anti-trafficking work mm-hmm. that is inclusive of sex workers and is inclusive of survivors of trafficking, and they're not focused on you know mm-hmm. shutting down a porn website. They're actually doing real work. Yeah, um, on the harder things.
1: Mm-hmm. Of course. I mean, it's much easier to just say we want to shut down this website rather than doing right. the actual material yeah. changes. It's harder we- to, like, house people, I <laughs> guess. <laughs> apparently. <laughs> <laughs> and apparently it's time for a little break. After a moment, we will be back with Sam Cole to talk more about her book, How Sex Changed the Internet and the Internet Changed Sex. Split Screen Kid Nation, a six part podcast from CBC. Available now. Hi, y'all. Hope you're enjoying today's show. If this is your first time listening to ICYMI, then welcome. We are thrilled to have you here. In case you missed it, that is the name of the show. And our show comes out twice a week, on Wednesdays and Saturdays, so make sure you never miss an episode like this past Wednesdays, where we reached deep into our mailbag to answer questions about the collaboration between Rihanna and Johnny Depp that literally no one asked for. And, heartwarmingly, a man who ate rotisserie chicken for 40 days straight. You don't want to miss it. And we're back with Sam Cole. Could you talk a bit about how some of the technologies that we use, like, every day now, like, video conferencing, we're on Zoom right now, affiliate linking programs, and online credit card transactions were, to, like, a pretty high degree pioneered and built by and for people either seeking or making adult entertainment?
0: Yeah. um, The ways that people immediately started using webcams for sex is not surprising, but it's also, like, it was immediate. Mm -hmm. It was so soon. So that's a big one where, you know, the technology had to be really good and not just the camera and how that worked, but also like the programs and the systems to display that Mm. and then also transmit it. That also had to be like top tier because people don't want to sit around and wait for like a web page to load. Yeah. I think you and I both are like, remember when like you could (laughs) open a web page and then like go eat dinner or whatever and Mm -hmm. then come back and like it's done. So that was not like tolerable for this industry because you had to do everything fast, fast, fast. Mm -hmm. And yeah, like you said, like affiliate marketing is a big one because like link directories. Which show a bunch of links to different websites.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: A lot of those in the beginning were porn websites. Like there would be a lot of like porn link directories because there was just so much out there that you needed to organize it in a way that wasn't being done yet because mm-hmm. you didn't have like search engines. Yeah. <laughs> you had to go to a directory and mm-hmm. say, Oh, I'm interested in this. And they were using affiliate marketing to pay the bills to keep their websites online. Um, so they were pioneering. How to actually like make money as a website, Um, and we use affiliate marketing still today. You know, it's like every day I'm on a website that has some affiliate marketing situation
1: going on. Yeah, (laughs) Um, Slate has affiliate marketing.
0: (laughs) So does Vice. It's a thing. I mean, and that goes way back to like porn sites and things like site subscriptions. Like they pioneered the members-only content, which is a huge thing now for like Patreon.
1: Streamers,
0: yeah, like streamers. All of this stuff that we use every day that's very much not safe for work mm-hmm. was built on adult webmasters doing the work first and getting the the bugs out. Yeah, <laughs> and like online credit card transactions was pioneered by people selling and buying porn, uh, which is so ironic because now it's like,
1: yeah, you can't even
0: like keep a bank now mm-hmm. if you're doing porn. So it's all embedded in there.
1: Yeah. That really feels like a kind of thrill line of your book, which is that people who are pioneering and working the bugs out of this technology that we now all use are then pushed to the margins or Mm -hmm. erased.
0: Yeah, it's constant. Yeah, yeah. Everywhere, still today.
1: (laughs) In your chapter on online dating, which I found really fascinating because online dating is the bane of my existence, (laughs) you wrote, it's telling that the way male techies of a certain era, the late 60s into the 90s like to refer to computing as godlike or that they were gods. For the most part these men made their fortunes by making everyone's worlds in their own images. And I was reading that and I was like, I feel like that didn't even stop at the 90s. Like I cannot think mm-hmm. of somebody who has a bigger god complex than like <laughs> Elon Musk or yeah, Mark Zuckerberg, yeah. but When you say it's telling, what do you think it's telling of?
0: I think it's telling of, I guess, the motivations, maybe. Mm -hmm. Like, a lot of these guys, they would start a dating website and then use it themselves to try to get girls. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, And it was always men trying to get girls. So, you know, it was definitely, I think that era was shaped by those motivations, as you know, get girls and make money. Whereas we're kind mm-hmm. of, a, and even like, I mean, you can go back to like Facebook's not a dating site, and that was yeah. the motivation mm-hmm. <laughs> with like the hot or not, or like the yes, face fa- smash, face smash yeah. or whatever. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So like, it's always the same kind of story, <laughs> yeah, over and over. So yeah, I mean, I think it's just it's a pattern that like you notice that's not very discreet, yeah. um, in the founders of a lot of these companies where they they want their their own. Like socialize their dating circles to be better, and they also just like want to make a lot of money doing it, and they think that they are the arbiter of that taste for everyone. It's like everyone's gonna want like this specific list of qualifications in a person, Mm -hmm. like you know, height, weight, eye color. It's like thank God we see more like diverse dating online dating options today, and a lot of those are built by like people who aren't men. (laughs) Yeah. But – or at least with, like, people who aren't, like, cis men in mind, yeah. um, which is really nice. <laughs> I think online dating is one way that, like, has definitely – I think the internet has changed sex in a huge, huge, huge way. You know, you didn't have, used to have, like, the power of everyone within a mile radius in your pocket. Yeah. It's just so mind-boggling to think about that if you take a minute and be like, well, if you had to describe that to someone 30 years ago, like, what? <laughs> <laughs> They would be like, no wonder like you guys are fucking sick of this yeah. like, <laughs> That sounds really overwhelming.
1: <laughs> when you think about it, even when you're on the apps, you're like just zooming out for a moment. This honestly mm-hmm. usually happens when I'm swiping and I'm high. I'm just like, this is crazy. What am I yes. doing right now? <laughs>
0: Yeah, yeah, I I am in a relationship now, but like I when I was using the apps, I was like, am I? I feel like I'm shopping for an apartment. Yeah. like I'm I'm just checking boxes, mm-hmm. and that's all an online dating profile is. You're just checking boxes, like mm. a lot of the times, or at least the old ones like Tinder and stuff like that. What
1: kind of impact do you think the God complex we're talking about has on the way the internet is structured as it's become like progressively more consolidated under? Billionaire tech founders.
0: Yeah, I mean that's one way. It's like it's just becoming, um, you know, monopolies of scale. It's just you know you just have these companies that own and run everything. And you know we see it happen with like the company formerly known as Facebook, you know, <laughs> with Meta just like bleeding bleeding money mm-hmm. over like one man's ego trip of a project because he thinks people want to buy a headset. You know, it's that kind of thing. It's yeah. like. I don't even have to explain what's going on with like Elon Musk and his power trip. <laughs> Just like I think that I know what's best and I know how to run this, and I don't want anyone else's like input mm-hmm. or anything. I mean, even like Steve Jobs ran his company that way, yeah, and he was like lauded for it. But it's so toxic, <laughs> like, <laughs> you know. It leaves a lot of people out, it leaves a lot of people in the margins that are doing really interesting and cool and important work and culturally fascinating things that the algorithms that get built by these guys that have these God complexes leave out completely. It's just a problem that's like, that's a pre-internet thing.
1: (laughs) Yeah. It almost reminds me of the old like Hollywood studio system in a way.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. It's like, you know, I am the decider of taste. Mm -hmm.
1: (laughs) And anyone outside of this will just not have a career or like a platform to go to that's not like Twitter or Facebook or TikTok. Yeah.
0: Yeah, and I think with that, I mean, with that specifically, like um, deciding what people are, might be into based on what you're into, I think was a huge problem in the porn industry mm-hmm. um, before the internet was, you know, you had to go through agents and producers and you had to do the studio system stuff and like be a certain look and look good on a DVD or I guess it was VHS tape um, <laughs> box at the time uh, or like on a magazine and you, know, you sold your image away and the rights to that content. And that worked for a lot of people and a lot of people got really famous that way. But, like, now because people have it in their own hands and they Mm -hmm. aren't under that, like, God complex type system, they're deciding for themselves what they're into and what other people might be into. You have a huge variety of porn now Mm -hmm. than you ever did in any point in the past. Because people actually find lots and lots of different things attractive. It's not just, like, skinny white blondes. (sighs) Like, it's tons of different things <laughs> that are hot thought? and sexy. <laughs> yeah, and it's like wow, what a mind-blowing like revelation, but it didn't those people didn't have like access to like any of these, you know, I guess like means of production. Yeah. <laughs> essentially until you had the internet that enabled them to do that. So,
1: mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. One of the people I found really interesting was live caster Jennifer Ringley. I mm. had never heard of her before reading this, but she's just, she's such a clear predecessor to so many of the things that are just a normal part of the internet landscape, like vlogs and live streams and yeah. like get ready with me videos. Could you yeah. talk a bit about Jennifer and like why you wanted to include her?
0: Yeah, so Jennifer Ringley, she was a live caster is what they called... Them at the time. So she basically said, I'm going to set up a webcam. It started in 1994. And she was like, I'm going to just stream my life. Mm -hmm. And it was like 24 hours a day. And she just was like, I'm going to do this as an experiment and not censor anything. Yeah. And this was like of the era of like real world and like reality TV was really becoming like a thing. Mm -hmm. So people were already kind of primed for that kind of like. Voyeurism, I guess, to kind of watch someone else do nothing. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they did stuff on Real World, but yeah,
1: mm-hmm.
0: uh, you know, you're you're kind of did watching in your
1: world. Yeah, they did
0: they did some wacky shit on Real World, but <laughs> God, uh, that era. I feel like I'm like tripping back to that. Mm-hmm. Um, but she kind of paved the way for this like whole genre of people that were just like, I'm gonna stream and do whatever, which eventually led up to like Twitch. Like the founder of Twitch was doing. Live streaming from his hat. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) And people watched it and they hoped that they could, like, in both cases, they were hoping to catch them, like, bring someone home or like having sex with their partner or whatever it was and, or like, get undressed. It's like, that was kind of like the between the lines aspect of it Mm -hmm. was if you're not going to censor anything that you do in your bedroom, you're going to do some salacious stuff. She wasn't at all like a pornographer. She didn't call herself that or anything, but like, it was just this very, yeah, no filter type. Of an experiment, and then of course, the popularity of that was happening at the same time as people were using webcams to stream, just mm-hmm. like specifically porn. Yeah, like they specifically wanted people to just watch. They were just streaming all day, waiting for people to log in and doing like member subscription site type stuff. So that was such a turning point, I think, in the way that we use the internet in general. The idea of, you know, you can just do whatever and be interesting, um, and you also just like use this tech this new, like, webcam thing. Yeah. Just stream yourself in your house and not have it be, like, a, a studio mm-hmm. or a set, I think was a big revelation.
1: Definitely. When you say a turning point, what do you think we were turning from towards?
0: Um, yeah, I think we were turning from that, like, that model of, like, controlling the product or, like, the the labor of whatever you were doing toward, like, I'm going to be, like, the brand and mm. it's going to be me doing the thing and I own it. Whether that was just live streaming and that kind of thing, and being like a personality or sex, and specifically with sex, that was a huge, that was a massive game changer for a lot of people, just to be able to to do that kind of thing from home and to control it and to say I own this content and I own
1: all of the things I need to make it. And now that is just how everything works on the internet. <laughs> yeah,
0: everything are all just like yeah, just
1: I love it personally. I don't think there's anything bad about that. <laughs> Up until now, we've spoken a lot kind of about, I would say, the foundation that our current internet is built on. But we haven't really talked a lot about the future. And the kind of underlying message in your book is that what sex workers create and experience online will ultimately become the mainstream or the norm, even if sex workers are, like, erased from that. So kind of big, impossible, and last question is, what do you think is next? (laughs) Like, what do you think (laughs) is next in terms of sex online and in terms of, like, the the way that's going to redound down? Yeah,
0: I have not yet found a succinct way to answer that
1: question. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure you're getting it a lot.
0: (laughs) But, I mean, there are, like, optimistic ways and pessimistic ways to kind of see the future of where we're headed. I think pessimistically, it's like, you see more and more efforts that are getting stronger and stronger towards censoring sexual speech in all venues sexual expression like i mean you know, they're setting like shops on fire for mm-hmm. drag shows like it's just yeah. it's things are getting more and more scary and violent and it feels a little bit like the walls are closing in online where you have fewer and fewer options to be able to express that side of yourself I mean, Tumblr just brought back nudity, but not explicit yeah. nudity. It's like, you know, they got rid of the whole communities by getting rid of not safe for content, and then you have Facebook that doesn't allow it at all, Instagram that doesn't allow it at all. And people kind of find ways to work around these things, but like you're risking getting shut down and losing access to yeah. a whole it doesn't sound like a big deal if you're not on these things all the time, but you're losing an entire audience, yeah. you're losing touch with other people, you know, that's your connection to like other people in your work in your industry, it would be devastating. So there's more and more of that happening. I do think actually there's more pushback against that sort of thing than ever. You know, we saw with OnlyFans that tried to get rid of explicit content a couple years ago and people were just like, no. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. No, you're not. Like this is messed up. Like your entire website is based
1: off of this.
0: Based off of this, it's built on, like, you're making millions of dollars on people's explicit content Mm -hmm. and people who want to pay for it. And they ended up reversing course. And the issue behind that was financial institutions that were trying to give them a hard time and shut them down. But the fact that they didn't cave to it and they said, no, we're going to actually, like, stand our ground on this because people pushed back, I think gives me a lot of hope. Like, that moment was very wild to witness. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Because a lot of people weren't really paying attention to, like, you know, the financial discrimination of sex workers yes. until all this. Mm-hmm. So it was like, oh my God, people are paying attention. But it's, it's going to be a hard battle, long-term kind of war thing where we have to actually keep paying attention and keep pushing back. But I do have hope that we can. And I think the optimistic view is like, you see more and more people actually setting up sites that are run by sex workers and are run by people in the industry and want to do it right and want don't want to be that like God complex type of Person, that gives me a lot of hope, and also just that people are doing and finding all kinds of weird new ways to have sex online every day. Yeah. It blows my mind. Like, <laughs> I mean, like I was just talking to someone else about this, but like the the way that people are like using virtual platforms to mm-hmm. have sex, yeah, yeah, <laughs> and to shoot content like in a virtual world. Mm-hmm. Is so interesting. I don't really have a lot of hope in like the headset situation. (laughs) Yeah. But there's a lot of platforms like that that are very live and interactive that aren't in a headset. Like you can do it on your desktop or you can do it on your phone. So I think if we can get back to that kind of spirit of like, let's get back to being like immersive with each other in community and like, and with our specific like interests that we're here for and not just like speaking into a void and, you know, getting like, Crazy replies and (laughs) just like awful, like hate speech and stuff. It's like, we have to dial that back. Yeah.
1: Dial it way back.
0: And yeah, kind of get back to the things that made the internet good. If we can do that, I think we'll be okay. It's just.
1: Can we do it? <laughs> yeah, it's a big if. I agree that the OnlyFans kind of pushback was really heartening yeah. at the time. It was not mm-hmm. something that I expected. And yeah, I think it's a good model like going forward of optimism about the internet when <laughs> it's getting increasingly hard to be optimistic about the internet. No, it really is. <laughs>
0: <laughs> we'll be okay. We'll be we'll great. We'll be great.
1: <laughs> Everything is fine. Everything is fine. On that very um, light note, Thank you so much for joining me. This was a great time.
0: Yeah, thank you. I have so much fun. I mean, yeah, I'm just honored that you guys wanted to talk about this stuff. It's always fun. (laughs) Of course,
1: of course. (laughs) Everyone, please go buy Sam's book, How Sex Changed the Internet and the Internet Changed Sex. Thank you. (laughs) Alright, that is the show. We'll be back in your feed on Saturday, so please subscribe. It is the best way to never miss an episode, to never miss an interview with an incredible author. Please leave a rating and review in an Apple or Spotify and tell your friends about us. You can follow us on Twitter at ICYMI underscore pod, which is also where you can DM us your questions about Twitter and Elon Musk that will be answered next Wednesday. And you can also always drop us a question at icymi@slate.com. at Slate.com. ICYMI is produced by Kevin Bendis, Daniel Schrader, and me, Rachel Hampton. Daisy Rosari is our senior supervising producer, and Alicia Montgomery is Slate's VP of Audio. See you online or not. This is the story of the one.